This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app, and you can also get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants, 18 plus. Rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to Albion Analysis with me, Chris Hall, and him, Pete George. The pods keep coming thick and fast because the games keep coming thick and fast. And Pete, at the moment, the wins keep coming thick and fast. Seven wins in eight games. Let's put that in in points terms. 21 points from the last available 24 it is absolutely staggering form from Albion at the moment. And you have to say, on the basis of what we saw against Preston, this isn't just riding the crest of a wave or anything, is it? We we were dominant. We were dominant at Bristol City, apart from a dodgy spell at the uh, at the end of the first half and the uh, and the start of the second. And other than the sort of first five minutes of either half, five, ten minutes of either half against Preston, we were absolutely dominant again. It's, I mean, you being the Albion fans that we are, you kind of, you're almost looking for, oh, when's this going to come to an awful shuddering halt? But if you're an outsider looking in, you'd be looking at us like, like, like a blooming steam train at the moment, wouldn't you? Yeah, and I was thinking flipping us with the likes of Burnley and Sheffield United for the three that they'll think would definitely be in the playoff spots come the end of the season, which is obviously a, a massive compliment. And I mean, I'm not sure if it is a compliment because I tend to agree at the minute, but to be tipped as a guaranteed uh, playoff spot from people that aren't even Albion fans and we're not even in the playoff spots at the minute is, yeah, it kind of says how well that Corbran has done since he's taken over and how good the results have been and, and we're flying up the league. Yeah, it truly is staggering, isn't it? I mean, it's as I say, 21 points from the last 24 available. So 21 points from the last eight games, which is really incredible when you think we only got 14 points from 17 games before that. I mean, when we, it's, the, it's the rate at which we are picking up points, which is, which is absolutely incredible because... You know, to be to be picking to be picking up this this many points, we're at, we're at a rate of two point six points per game, Pete. Now, any given season, a rate of two points per game just over will probably, well, will almost certainly win you the league. A rate of two point six points per game, and not that we're going to sustain this over a whole season, would. It would be a record points total in uh, over over the course of uh, over the course of a season. I mean, just to put that in in perspective, if we did that over a forty six game season, that's one hundred and twenty points. That's the level of form we're in at the moment. I th- I think it's the reason I want to emphasise this is because when it does slow down a little bit, and it inevitably will slow down a little bit, as I said on the last pod, people need to keep their heads a little bit because. You can't run at a rate where you are going to earn 
120 points over the course of a season for a sustained period of time, can you? Well, I wouldn't have thought so, but you, know, you never know with Carlos Corran in charge. He's obviously doing brilliantly and um, I think as we're deserving of our wins as well, it's not like we've been lucky. Absolutely dominated the game against Preston, at least for the first 60, 70 minutes. And then after that, we kind of let off a little bit and they may have had a bit more possession, but again, didn't really create any clear-cut chances. We kind of, you know, stepped off a little bit, made some subs, rested a few players. Yeah, we, we looked comfortable throughout. And I think that's been the case for the vast majority of the games that we've played under Corbran, I don't think. Apart from, obviously, Sheffield United and Coventry was a bit, was, yeah, a bit, it wasn't a control game at all. But apart from those two games, every game that we've played, we've been um, controlled and I'd say the dominant team and definitely the one that looks more likely to win, not just the one that has been winning. And just as you mentioned there, Pete, yeah, okay, the last few, the, the last sort of like 10, 10, 10, 15 minutes were a little bit dodgy. They obviously hit the post um, just before injury time. And given that there was um, four minutes of injury time, that could have been a really, really uncomfortable last five minutes. But Corbran, I feel like, you know, we mentioned Moneyball on the last pod and I feel like he is, um, he's almost like a mathematician. He kind of, he works out where, where, where the good gambles are. And I think he saw it as a good gamble to rest important players like Jed Wallace and, and people like that and bring off Jason Mullumby and, and rest some legs because we're having so many games in such a short period of time. And he's rotated these players out to keep them fresh, working on the basis that, you know, hopefully Preston wouldn't get two goals back and that it was worth the risk and reward to to bring these players out and, and, and keep them fresh so that they could go again in the next match. And I think that's something that we were very critical of the Bruce regime and people, to be honest, were critical of... Of Valerian Ishmael saying he was he was immovable. He went back and back to the same uh, the same the same players, um, and certainly Bruce. I felt earlier earlier in the season, especially given the amount of players we'd had coming on freeze and how many players we've got who, are, you know, we have got one of the oldest squads in the division. I I did feel Bruce was trying to get too much out of players who either hadn't had much of a preseason or were the wrong age to be playing the volume of games that he was asking them to play. And I know game state comes into this because Bruce never had the luxury of being, you know, 2-0 up with 20 minutes to go in a game. But then, you know, that's not by accident that Carlos Corbran has that luxury. He earns that luxury and he avails him the opportunity to take players off. I'll be honest, I'm not sure at 2-0 up Steve Bruce would have been uh, w- with with 15 minutes to go or whatever it was. I'm not sure Steve Bruce would be hooking Jason Malumbi for Taylor Gardner Hickman that he would be bringing Jed Wallace off for for Carlin Grant. I think he would be probably bringing these players off with 5 6 minutes to go. But Carlos he he looks at, like I say he looks at the percentages and he says actually the minimal r- risk that it is and I think it's something like 75% of teams who go 2-0 up in a game go on to win them. He probably looks at that and goes, given the small percentage chance of Preston coming back in this game, I would rather have that rest in the legs of players who are important to me in the coming weeks and take the risk that we are one of the one of the few who gets come back on. Yeah, and I don't think it was just about getting a bit more rest into important players. I think it was also trying to um, keep the squad happy. Um, and keep players that haven't been playing that much happy as well because I think, well, we we haven't seen too much of Carl and Grant or Adam Reach since Corbrand took over. Um, and I'm sure they'll be be asking when they'll when they're going to get the chances and and stuff because, as you say, when we when you are leading games, you've got a bit more flexibility about who you can bring on. So. I think it was probably partly. I think, I think to... Carlin Grant wants to be careful what questions he asks. Given the last time he played for Carlos Corbran, he refused to play, though, mate. <laughs> that is true, but yeah, I think it is partly to try and keep the the harmony of the squad there. And um, yeah, like you say, when you have got that two 0 lead, you can afford to probably rest some players um, and give others that aren't your, your first choice a, a run out. But I think he did kind of uh, maybe taper it a bit, if you like, because I don't think Jed will. Jed Wallace went off until maybe the 
75th minute, something like that. He wasn't one of the first set of subs. And I think you probably want him as your, one of your most important players on the pitch to just make sure the intensity is still there um, and just kind of see us through that period of the subs coming on and getting into the game. But then after they hadn't scored for that period and again, didn't look a major threat, I think Corbin probably felt comfortable taking Jed off as well because he's probably one of the players that you'd want to get rest into the most because... You know, he's non-stop when he's on the pitch. He's up and down and he starts... Well, his intensity was incredible as well, Pete. I was looking at the data beforehand and it kind of felt like this sitting in the Birmingham Road last night, but he had seven shots on goal last night, three on target. I mean, you felt for the... Ble- I mean, one of them was a world-class save from Freddie Woodman. I don't use that, uh, throw that phrase around around lightly, but that one with his feet in the first half is just a staggering save. Others were... Not the best shots from uh, from Jed. I mean, there was one where in the second half where he's got to go across the goalkeeper. But I mean, for, he's almost exhausting to watch, isn't he? Because he just he just doesn't stop. He's like uh, he's like the Duracell bunny. Yeah, that one in the first half where he he got it around the halfway line or something, didn't he? And he I think he nutmegged one of their defenders and carried it all the way. And I was watching it on TV and I couldn't really. I thought he just hit it wide because I think there was maybe a pers- a player in the way of. Um, the vision of the keeper. I didn't realise that woman had saved it until the ref gave a corner. But yeah, that would have been a that would have been up there for goal of the season contender if he'd uh, pulled that one off as well. But I'm looking forward yeah. to the uh, to, to the lads um, at the, the club picking the ten for that. By the way, I I remember the hardest season I ever had working at the club was uh, was um, the it was it was the season under Steve Clark when we had uh, when we had um, Lukaku in the, in the team um, and I actually uh, I, uh, if I remember correctly I actually went into the coach's office and and gave uh, and gave Steve Clark and Kevin Keane the, the the choice between two of them because I actually couldn't couldn't pick the shortlist myself. It got that bad. I think it's going to get that way um i think it's going to get that way this season seems like that seems that way especially with you know thomas asante and apparently yakushlu as well is going to be competing for them after his strike um against preston and i mean i don't think he'll be up there for goal of the season contender but even the second one it was um a brilliant bit of pressing and a nice little move after we won the ball back as well and a good finish so i mean we're scoring nice goals and we could have had a few more as well maybe not so nice but Thomas Asante had a couple of chances that just didn't seem to, ball didn't seem to go in the back of the net for him in that game. But as I keep saying about him, he keeps getting chances and. You know, if he if he keeps getting into the right areas and getting shots off, then well, with a bit better in. refereeing, he'd have been cleaned through in the first half as well. I mean, I, that that referee, by the way, last night was dreadful, absolutely dreadful, and he's got he's got to let Brandon play on there, especially as he as he gave um, Preston a good three four second play on in the second half. Yeah, I mean that decision was dreadful. He kind of played the advantage for like a second, and then all he had to do was just hold hold his whistle for a couple more like another second and he was seen that Asante was Tom Asante was up and we were three on one four on one but in fairness to him I don't think he was that bad apart from that decision I thought he was just I'd say I've seen a lot worse in the championship but I have to say, I thought he was very generous with Daryl DK in in the second half. I couldn't believe when Daryl when DK went in with his foot up like that and caught the player that he didn't even give a foul. I mean, I I was genuinely worried about what colour the card was going to be, not whether or not it was a foul. And he didn't even give the free kick. Yeah, that one was a bit surprising, and maybe the ref was a bit reluctant to get his cards out. But I don't think it was. I mean. I couldn't really tell if he made contact. He didn't look too too much force behind it. So he caught him. He was it was right it. in front of me. It was at the Brummy Road end. Well, maybe a bit lucky there, but you know you gotta gotta have a bit of luck when results are going for you. But either way, with or without the ref, it was a, a very good performance. And I think yeah, we can happily focus on the players with this, can't we? Because I don't think anyone really had a bad game, and some players in particular had very very good games, such as okay Yokozlu again. Well, let's get on to talk about him, Pete, because I mean, we, or maybe we were, maybe we were premature after Bristol City because we sat here and we just crowed about how good OK Yakoslu was. But we talked about just his defensive stats. We talked about him in a pure defensive sense. Well, he showed the other side of his game against Preston, two goals, but I mean, they're not just. 
it's not just two goals. Normally, when a defensive midfielder goes and gets two goals, they're, they're often two quite scrappy goals. As you said before, Pete, they're quality, quality goals. And the first one, first of all, it's great. It's a great little shake of the hips to get away from the defender, couple of, a little, little change of pace. And, and then he hits the, the shot so, Early. I mean, when you actually look at look at it back on the replay, Freddie Woodman, who we will come on to speak about in a, in a moment, who had a brilliant night generally, is so flat footed. Like he just doesn't think the shot's coming, um, and it's an unbelievable hit from uh, from Yukoslu. And the second one is just a lovely bit of finesse. And first of all, it shows the tenacity of the bloke that he wins the ball in the first place after they're overplaying at the back. Great little ball by Swift. By the way, just a nod to Carlos. Yet another goal contribution by a substitute, an assist by John Swift. Incredible how Carlos's substitutes just keep on giving something to the game. You know, you want subs to come in and impact the game. They do every week with Carlos. It's incredible. And the finish with the outside of the boot from Yukoslu is just pure finesse. Couple of things on it, Pete. First of all, it's it's lovely to see that side of his game because I think we, we've crowed about his defensive skills for a few weeks, but it's great to see that. One, we talked about Jed Wallace as undroppable. Is Yukoslu getting himself into that bracket? And two, does Jason Malumbi alongside him unleash a whole other OK Yukoslu? Well, um, it's a lot to answer, but I think, as you say, he did brilliantly to... He won the ball back for both of the goals, um, which was, I mean, it showed his defensive side as well as the two finishes as well. Um, I'm be surprised if we see him score too many this season. Um, I think he's just in brilliant form. He, he's full of confidence and the two opportunities kind of fell for him. I mean, the second one, obviously, it was he made the run and Swift had either him or Thomas Asante to pick out and or even have a shot himself. So he was just kind of got himself into the right place at the right time after pressing to win it back. Um, and the first one, it just, no one closed him down and it fell quite nicely and what a strike it was. I think he probably looks more comfortable with, well, I think it, it does depend on who we play against, but with Jason Malumbi next to him, he's probably has a bit more confidence to press high like we saw in the second goal um, because he knows that Malumbi's behind him and can cover him a bit more than maybe if he was playing with Tom Rog and John Swift. Well, the data um, backs that up as well. I mean, Malumbi had more defensive stats than than Yukoslu last night, but Yukoslu had the most key passes of any Albion player. Yeah, well, the thing that he did, Yukoslu did so well was, I think he had the highest number of progressive passes as well. Um, but they, they largely weren't in um, control possession. So, like early stages of build-up, it was more from after we won the ball back. He was quite often very direct with his first pass and moving it forward, which is key if you want to counter after you win the ball back which is well I've said it before that Corbran seems to like to focus on creating chances through transitions and obviously once you win the ball back you need to play the, f- the first pass forward if you want to be as dangerous as you can in that transition um, which he did very well and he also defended their counter attacks quite well because that's that's how we won the um, the ball back for the first goal it wasn't really necessarily high pressing you usually was sitting deeper and what you call the rest of defence, which is, you know, just basically defensive setup when you do have the ball to stop against those counter attacks. Can't remember who it was, but somebody put pressure on the first ball and, and they were trying to break after they won the ball back. But um a poor touch allowed you crucially to step in. So it, it wasn't necessarily high pressing from him. It was just kind of sitting deep and protecting against that counter attack and he stepped in at the, the perfect moment and won the ball back and, and went and scored from it. But um so he's I think his passings his passing stats quite often came from after he won the ball back, or after somebody won the ball back and moving it forward quickly, which is really important for how we want to play. Is he undroppable at the moment? Uh, you know, I mean, we, we we said that Jed Wallace is one of the few, a few, like I say, a couple of weeks ago, we said that Jed Wallace is one of the few names on the team sheet that has to be there every single game. Are we getting to a point where Yukoslu is probably the second one? Maybe behind Alex Palmer, but... Um... Like outfield players, sorry. I should have caveated outfield players. Yeah, I'd say so. He's, like you say, he's been brilliant defensively, brilliant in protecting us against counter-attacks as well as against just more controlled possession attacks. Um, and he's, without actually being the one to move the ball forward, um, 
directly when we're trying to build up from the back. He's very important in just kind of showing for the ball and um, maybe playing just one-twos with the centre-backs or the full-backs. But he quite often, by showing for the ball, he attracts somebody to him. And when he can't, he quite often then drops into the back line and allows Dara O'Shea or Eric Peters to carry the ball forward and usually drops in to kind of protect the space that they've left. And that's more often how we move the ball forward rather than usually just getting on the ball and playing a forward pass like, you know, like Romain Sawyer's did in the Billich promotion season. Most of the progression came through him and through passing the ball. But usually he just seems to love to have the ball at his feet. Like I say, I'm, I'm not. He's so untroubled as well, isn't he? He's he's so calm in in possession. He's he is like he's like a top level player in that in that you can you can trust him with the ball in difficult areas. Yeah, um, he's very comfortable with the ball at his feet, and he he does love to put a show on as well with his flicks and and his tricks that he does in tight areas. Which I mean, when you're winning two 0 it's it's great to see because everyone does want to be entertained. It's a bit more worrying when he's doing it at nil nil and. Maybe taking a risk. I think he had one in the first half where he's tried to back heel it down the line or something and it went out for a throw in. But yeah, everyone wants to be entertained with that. So if it's done in the right places and in the right timing games, then it's good. But as you say, he's very comfortable on the, on the ball. Um, I'm not, I don't rate his passing massively, but he does seem comfortable in, in to receive the ball in tight spaces. And, you know, he's got good, good footwork to get out of those spaces. As long as he's then playing a, a simple pass to a teammate, then it's, you know, it's perfect. You don't want him to be... I don't think... He, yeah, I think he's very comfortable on the ball and he's going to see a lot of the ball, but as long as he keeps his passing relatively simple and low risk, then it's not a... Then it's, you know, the perfect role for him. And as you said, both goals came from not a high press, but but from from pressing the, the Preston players. That's the last three goals that have come from us turning over possession and then, and then breaking on, on teams. It seems like two things really that one the players seem to have completely bought into what Corbran is asking them to do out uh, outside of possession but two they seem to completely understand it as well i it was that and and those two things are a point i never felt we really quite got to under Ishmael, he obviously wanted a high intensity style of play. I'm not comparing the two because I'm, I'm well aware that they're, they're extremely different in what we, in what the players are asked to do. But my point is in terms of buying into a, a way of doing things, I felt under Ishmael that we never quite got to a point where the players either A, completely believed in it or B, completely understood it. I feel like we've ticked both those boxes under Corbran already. Yeah, with Corbran, there's a mixture of press and higher. I mean, I'd say the second goal was definitely a high press. We wanted to stop them from, I think it was a goal kick that they tried to build out from and we were straight on top of it. And Woodman had taken um, chances in those positions all night. I mean, it was probably spoken about at half-time, I would have thought, and um, maybe Okuzli was given the licence to push higher and try and win that ball back if it did happen again, if it went straight into the central midfielder, which I think that one did. Um, so I think, yeah, with Corbran, there's a nice balance. We do try and get pressure on the ball quite a lot of the time. In fact, almost all the time. I think in early stages of build-up, we tend to try and press quite high, but then we're also we're equally comfortable dropping back into more of a low block um, if they've got uh, possession of the ball in, in the final third or in the middle third. And we're comfortable doing that and then breaking on teams. Um, but the, the counter-attacks, the breaking on teams, the transitions, whatever you want to call it, is vital for how we want to create chances. And I looked at this after the the Bristol City game because I noticed that we do seem to be very focused on those fast breaks and we seem to be a lot more clinical in creating chances on them which we weren't under Bruce so I, I look at the numbers and under Bruce we had three shots that came from fast breaks um, under Corbran this is not including the um, Preston game we've had seven shots already and if you look at the percentage of RXG that that makes up um, under Bruce, it was 1.6, whereas under Corbran, it's, it's 7%. So it's a massive um, increase and an obvious focus on when we do win the ball back to break quickly and to be clinical and get shots off with those counterattacks. We seem to be able to do both as well, though, don't we, Pete? Because then then you've got teams like... Rotherham and Blackpool who've come and sat in against us and shown very little ambition and we've still caused them problems. Yeah, and that's kind of a mixture of all things because we do seem 
well, especially in the first few games in the core run when we had Bartley to aim for, we seemed massively improved from set pieces. Maybe that was just a bit of luck in those couple of games because we've not seen too much since then. Or maybe it was the case of having Bartley. Who's probably we haven't really got the height, though, at the moment, have we? With O'Shea and Peters at centre-half. No, Bartley's always going to be the, the best man to have in the box if you... Or, or um, a Jai, but we haven't got either of them. Yeah, um, so it might be a case of that rather than just around a bit of luck in the first couple of games. But, I mean, we'll see when Bartley comes back if he can... Well, it depends if he can get back into the team, the way that we're playing, if we're not conceded in open play for since this Sheffield United game, I think. So it might be difficult for him. But, yeah, I think we've improved in, in all areas of attack. Um, even just regular possession attacks, we seem to be seems to be more movement off the ball and more combinations. There was a couple of times where we were built out from the back and we just seemed to slide through them. Um, I can remember one going down the down the left. I think Dan Garner and Townsend were involved and played a nice pass to one played. I think it was maybe Dan Garner sliding it inside to Townsend who tried to cross, or maybe maybe the other way around. But either way, we just it was the kind of thing that we didn't really see under Bruce where. We started with a goal kick and within 10 seconds, we'd, I think we ended up winning a corner from it, just slicing through teams with, in just controlled possession and, and everyone seemed to know the movements to make and the passes to make and just seemed to be on the same wavelength as each other and, and know what to do. Well, the other thing is, um, comparing Corbran to Bruce, Pete, and we're not going to go too far down this line, but I kind of, I just had a little look back before we came on air at the, the, the data from the 1-0 defeat at Deepdale, because I think you and I, that was the first time you and I came on the pod and were really quite vocal about the fact that time had ran out on Steve Bruce. And I, I think we felt that should have been the end of the line for him because that was the, that was the performance where I, I felt like the players had given up on the Steve Bruce era. And I looked at what we did last night that uh, that that we didn't do at Deepdale under Bruce, and actually, like the um, you know, in terms of goal attempts and things like that, there wasn't actually that much difference. But what jumped off the page at me, if indeed my laptop has a page, um, it is that we matched them in the air and in terms of tackles won last night, which were two duels that we completely lost at Deepdale. It just seems like it's the basics with Corbran. I mean, obviously what you do afterwards with the with the ball is massively important, but is it fair to say that where, where Bruce was getting it wrong was probably the stage before getting the ball really. And that's, the first thing that Corbran has come in and focused on, and maybe that's the difference between going to Deepdale and getting turned over in one of the most comfortable one nils I've ever seen to facing the same side a few months later and beating them very, very comfortably two nil. Well, yeah, the key parts of football will always be there and you'll always have to get them right. And that's, for example, winning your 50-50s, whether that's in the air, whether that's in your tackles, um, if you can do constantly and consistently win those duels, then you're gonna you're gonna be in a good place to kind of build a performance from there. Um, so if we get those right, then if we get that right and get the intensity right and are brave enough and strong enough in those duels, then it's a a very good place to start to then build your performance from. Um, we do seem improved in that. Whether it's I don't know if we well, it'd definitely be interesting to see if we we're covering more distance under Corbran. Um, unfortunately, those stats aren't readily available, so I can't really tell. But I think people, I think the players are more... You mean um, the club doesn't send you the GPS data, Pete? That is that is shameful. I'd love if they did, um, but maybe one day. Well, uh, you, you you are a man who would spend hours thumbing through that. I, I, I know that. I would do, and uh, <laughs> Corbran, if I never need some help, then uh, he can send it my way. But... Um, I think the players are probably more uh, comfortable and more knowledgeable about the positions that they need to be in and kind of the triggers for them to press a player and then to fill in for another player that's maybe pressing. So I think it may not just be improved fitness. I think it may just be people, the players are more just in the right position more often than they were under Steve Bruce to defend and potentially cover less space than they were. So, yeah, I think the intensity's increased. Maybe the fitness levels have as well, which gives us the energy to win the duels and win the second balls as well. I just think on the whole, everything's in, probably improved. And I mean, that's definitely shown in 
the results, isn't it? And they seem happier, Pete. They seem happier. Like, uh, I mean, I, one thing I noticed at the at the, at the final whistle, because, you know, um, it was a big crowd last night and it took a while to get out the Birmingham Road. So, um, we was, we stood on the, on the staircase up to the vomitory for quite, uh, for quite some time. And, uh, you know, obviously as you do, you, you, you're looking out onto the pitch, you're applauding the players. And I noticed as they came over to, uh, to the Birmingham Road, you've got a number of players going over to OK Yokoslu and laughing with him and shining his boot, like, you know, um, and and he's sort of like sh- shoving them and because jo- they're obviously taking the Mickey because he never normally scores and he's gone and banged two quality goals in. And then there was that moment in the second half where DK went shoulder to shoulder um, with one of their players and uh, and nearly put him out the ground. He hit him that hard and left him flat out on the floor. And um, Brandon Thomas Asante ran over to DK, just bumped into him and threw himself to the ground. And they're both laughing. And I'm thinking. I haven't seen this since like the Billich promotion. I haven't seen this since like we had Pereira and Kravonovic dancing on the pitch at Bristol City away. Do you know what I mean? I haven't seen this level of jocularity, humour, enjoyment, happiness in the players for, you know, two and a half years, Pete. And having been around a club and worked at a club, I can't begin to tell you the difference that atmosphere makes in success when everyone is happy coming into work, when everyone is coming in with a smile on their face and looking forward to the next game. You know, it's a pleasure that you are that, that you are playing Boxing Day, twenty ninth, second of January, seventh in 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 the cup. You know, you, you're happy about the game every three days when when you're that happy in your work and. It's, it was so great last night to visibly see it from the players after the match that they're comfortable with each other. They're happy. They're having a laugh. They're going into the changing rooms smiling. It, 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 he doesn't just seem to have transformed the way we play. He seems to have transformed the entire atmosphere around the place. Absolutely. And it, it's vital because, well, if everyone's happy to play and getting on better with each other and more comfortable with each other, there's going to be more understanding on the pitch and players are going to be more willing to to work for each other and for the team. So cultivating a happy dressing room is is probably one of the, the best things that a new manager can do because I'm sure you'll see the effects in training. Supporters will see the effects on the pitch on the weekend or midweek or whatever day it is now. But um, yes, it's, it's clearly vital. What I will say is it's obviously easy to have a happy dressing room when you're winning and when we've won... Seven of eight. Six out of the last seven, seven of eight. eight. Uh, but but then again, Pete, I could throw that back at you and say, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah, exactly. So I think Corbrand's probably done a lot of work in improving um, the atmosphere around the club. Um, and that's helped us improve results on the pitch. But those results on the pitch will obviously improve that atmosphere further. So I think, yeah, so far it's done brilliantly to do that. But it'll be interesting to see whether that atmosphere is still there when we do go through a rough patch, which I'm sure we will at some point, and that's when it's it's probably harder to to get that same atmosphere and same happiness from the players. So that'll be the test, I think. Just moving away from things on the pitch and a couple to finish off, Pete, around uh, things off the pitch. I mean, we talked a lot about Freddie Woodman when we played at Preston, and he was brilliant again last night. And I, I do think he's one we missed out on at over the summer that's not a criticism of Alex Palmer but then we didn't start the season with Alex Palmer as number one did we we started with David Button who absolutely is not good enough and we've highlighted players a few times this season when we've played opposition teams we we, we highlighted um, Ellis Sims um, uh, as, as a loanee that we should have been looking at a few weeks ago when we when we played Sunderland and I do think especially in light of what's you know what's been announced this week we know about the loan now and we know we're going to have very little money going forward that look the players we brought in in summer by and large look good players wallace swift rogic yukoslu however all four of those that i've just named did not come cheap they're all going to be on exceptionally high wages. None of them cost a transfer fee, but they will all have cost a pretty penny in terms of wages. I honestly believe that we can't do that going forward. 
with the financial state of the club as it is. And we've got to stop missing out on your Freddie Woodman's, your Ellis Sims. You might say to me, okay, Chris, what, what, why, why would we need Freddie Woodman? We've got Josh Griffiths coming through, you know, we've got Alex Palmer. All right. But you could have easily gone into this season with Woodman and Palmer as you two goalkeepers. Now, first of all, that's a very strong one and one, two. Now, you could also say that Josh Griffiths is coming through. He's he's out on loan at Portsmouth. Okay, but you, you bring in Freddie Woodman for £700,000, right? And you play him as the Albion number one for a season, or maybe two, if you send Josh Griffiths out again next season on loan. If he plays like he has played in the couple of games I've seen him play this season, which is the two against the Albion, he is not a £700,000 goalkeeper in two years' time. He is a five, six, maybe even seven million pound goalkeeper. And you sell him, you make a nice tidy profit, and then you maybe bring through Josh Griffiths and Josh Griffiths and Alex Palmer are you two going forward. These are the sorts of things that we haven't been doing, Pete. We haven't been bringing in players who have resale value. And you look down the squad now, and we, we talked about it a bit off air, that if we are in a situation in 12 months time, 18 months time, maybe even six months time where we haven't got out of this division and we do need to clear the decks a little bit. Where are the saleable assets in this squad? And I do think that that there needs to be a mentality switch. There needs to be better scouting as well. There needs to be more intelligent recruitment. And we've got to be picking up these cheap gems who are only going to increase in value because we are missing out on them at the moment, aren't we? Well, the less money you have, the smarter you've got to be with your recruitment. Um, obviously, this season, having, still having the parachute payments mean we've not had to be too creative and that's probably a, quite important for us considering... Well, we I mean, went... that, has that been naive though, Pete? Has that been extremely short-sighted when, when we're having to take out a massive loan to, to cover our future expenses? I'd say so, yeah. But I don't know whether we've got the reason resources to be creative in our recruitment i think we just basically signed two of the best players in the league that were um on a free and then brought in a former player who was again out of contract it's it's hardly creative recruitment but as the money that dries up which it definitely will if we don't get promoted because it's the last year parachute payments and well we just had to take out a 20 million pound loan to to cover our expenses um so as that happens, we're going to have to be more creative with the players that we sign, spend less money on them. Um, well, at the moment, our best scout is Matt Smith of Salford. Exactly. And yeah, I don't know if Colbrand's got any any neighbours, but might be worth having a look at them. But uh, son-in-laws or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, you mentioned Freddie Wood- Woodman, but there's for me, there was a, another player that stood out both times that we've played press in the season. That's a, a left wing back. Alvaro Fernandez, I think he's on loan from Manchester United. He's probably not somebody that we'd need considering we're not using wing backs, but he looks very useful, um, especially going forward. And I think I'm right in saying that when we played them at Deepdale, he was was the one that put the cross in that uh, was it Emil Reese scored from. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they gave him man of the match as well. He was he was unbelievable. Yeah, so I mean, I'm sure we could have competed to get him in on loan at the start of the season. Again, we may not have needed him if we're not playing with wing backs, but just players like that, we should be. We should be looking at the top clubs and their young players and which of them are ready to make the step up and, well, yeah, the step step up from uh, under-21s football or whatever it is and into senior football in the championship. Or even or even those that are ready to be on the periphery. I mean, you look at the lad at um, at Sunderland who, who caused us no end of problems the other day from Manchester United and... He he didn't start the season in the team. He but it, but but he's grown into it, and now he's one. He's probably the first name on their team sheet. Yeah, and we've just there's a lot of talent in these under twenty one players, and it should be something that we we should be looking at it, especially you know post Brexit, where recruiting from lower leagues in Europe is much harder. Um, we'd have thought you'd put a lot of emphasis on your um, domestic scouting and looking at these going to matches for under 21s matches and, and looking at these young players and trying to find which ones are ready. Obviously we looked at we linked with uh, Liam Dilla in the summer, but apart from that I can't think of any loan signings, um loan young signings that we that we were linked with. And I think Liam Dilla was just 
well, a bit of an obvious one, and Stoke had already been linked with him, so I don't know whether that came we from We were us. reactive after the piece with all of these, and the, uh, the same, the same with, um, uh, with, with Davis from the Villa as well. You know, it, it was, it was when other teams went in for them. We went in for them. I mean, we did, we largely did the same with Brandon Thomas Asante, kind of went in after Blues had gone in for him. Yeah, and that's, that's where I wonder whether we're actually spotting these players and thinking these are going to be really good players, or we've kind of just got an idea that they're there and, and then we see someone decent going for them and we think, oh, okay, maybe then we make a move. But I think we need to be more proactive with finding these youth players and yeah, especially when, when finances are going to be, well, we're going to be short financially in the next season or two. So you've got to be smarter and get these players in on loan, um, make, make use of the loans, the loan slots because they're probably cheaper than, than bringing a senior player. Um, and high wages well, and well, and you're not committed for multiple years, Pete. Yeah, exactly. Which is something that we might be paying a price for in the next few seasons, um, paying high wages and and not having the income to to cover the cost of those wages potentially. Absolutely, because let's just let's just finish with a quick word on the loans, Pete. We talked about it in a reasonable amount of depth on on the last pod, so I don't want us to go back over and repeat ourselves two pods in a row. But there there has been a little bit of meat on the bones given by the club statement, which confirmed that it was a four-year deal. We weren't entirely sure how long the, the, the loan was going to be for. Confirmed the amount, 20 million, although we were fairly sure that was going to be the case. And confirmed... What unfortunately we we were worried about, which because it was the only logical thing, that it's borrowed against club assets, which presumably means the training ground and the stadium. Let's put this in the starkest possible terms here, Pete. And I don't look. I realise this is this is a period of time where Albion have won seven games out of eight, and I, I and you know it's Christmas time. And everybody has the right to be happy and everything. I really, really don't want to rain on anyone's parade. But also we do have to live in the real world and we have to talk about real things. And we're seeing protests against Preston. The the white paper held up the shine a light, the chants. And there's talk of it ramping up. There's talk of a sit-in against, uh, against Reading. And I just want to emphasise why I think protests are very, very important. Also, I think the right kind of protest. Daz Hale... Um, said on WM last night when he was talking to Ali Jones from Action for Albion. Um, Ali said that there has been people talking about things like invading the pitch and things like that. And Daz quickly said back to Ali, as soon as you start doing that, you lose all credibility. And I completely agree with Daz's point there. You, we, we've got to keep these the right side of the line where we, you know, we as the fans aren't the bad guys here. We know who the bad guys are and we've got to have credibility in the media. And I think as soon as we start being breaking laws and things like that, we lose all credibility. So I just want to emphasize why I think that these protests are important. They may not change anything. They may change absolutely nothing, but they you never know that it's better to do something than to do nothing. And the reality is the one thing that that statement by the club confirmed for me Pete is that in two years time if or possibly even in six months time if we're not in the Premier League there is a very real risk of us losing our stadium our historic hundred year old stadium that we've all been going to that is held up as the highest ground above sea level that we have always played our football at there's a real risk of us losing that there's a real risk of us losing the training facility in Warsaw that we spent so much time turning into an incredible facility. Let's not forget, under Gary Megson, they were training on Sutton Park at times, the players. And we've now got a state-of-the-art facility in Warsaw. We're at risk of losing that. You know, we're in, at risk of losing the heart and soul of this football club if we can't pay back this loan. Or if, more pertinently, if we can't get into the Premier League in the very, very near future. And that's why it's so important to make our voice heard at this moment in time, because this ownership is gambling the assets and the future of this football club. And you look at the likes of Derby County and the struggles they've been through, and we ain't a million miles off them. You look at Coventry, who have had to play 
their home games here, there and everywhere at Birmingham City, at Northampton Town, that they've had to play the odd game at Burton because uh, bec- because the Commonwealth Games are being held on uh, on on their uh, on their pitch. Do we want to become those kind of clubs? Absolutely not, in my opinion. So now is the time to make our voices heard because this is very, very worrying, Pete. And it's not as if Action for Albion are asking a lot from you. It's a very simple process. I mean, there was the white paper and then there was even more simple because everyone, I mean, I'd say 99% of people in the scene, we've got a phone that's got a torch on them. All you have to do is hold that up for a minute. The more people that get involved, the, the bigger the point, the more talk about it, the more coverage in the media and probably support in the media as well for it. Because I don't think there'll be many people that want to see another historic club go into administration. I think we've had enough of them in the past five or six years. Um, so I think, yeah, keep the protests uh, on the right side of the law. Um, the more people taking part in them, the more uh, coverage they'll get and the more support they'll get and the more likely that we'll see something from them. Yeah, it's obviously not guaranteed that we will. they'll be successful in in actually making a change in the ownership or anything, but the more support and coverage they can get, then the better chance that they will have an impact. So I think it's yeah a very small ask for something that will mean so much to everyone in the stadium. Yeah, and as you say, Pete, you know, talk about historic football clubs. After Derby and Bolton, we could be the third of the founder members of the Football League to play really fast and loose with with our future. Uh, you've got to ask the question, at what point do the EFL have to get involved in in this and start doing start doing more? It's very difficult to know. I realise they can't get involved in private ownership of football clubs. And I realise that our ownership was transferred to lie in the Premier League. And by the way, they their fit and proper persons test is an absolute joke because it doesn't test anything. But at some point, the people who run the game have got to start doing more to protect these clubs, to protect, you know, historic football clubs who've sat there for, you know, nearly 150 years now and actually protect them as assets of the community, not as businesses, not as privately owned businesses, but as community assets. Because let's be clear about this. Okay. We might be treated as a business. We are not a business. This is not, it's not a cold, hard thing. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not something that is here today, gone tomorrow. This is a huge part of people's lives that people feel a massive sense of ownership. I realize in the eyes of the law, what I'm talking is total rubbish because in the eyes of the law, this is a business that can be owned by an individual person. But the reality, of the way people feel about this club is that it is not, that is not what it is. And that I don't like calling people like lie owners, they're custodians and there's a difference. And they, they have the, they have sway over the club for a period of time and then they hand it over to somebody else. But the people who own the club, the people who keep it as what it is are the people who hand the club down generation by generation and those are the fans and at some point the people who run football have got to start protecting the supporters and their community asset which is the clubs absolutely and well said obviously there's the fit and proper owners test which doesn't really take much to pass but even so I think it's difficult to kind of stop the dealings that have happened with us for example happening obviously clubs want to gamble and spend money to get into the Premier League um, to earn the big bucks. But, I mean, yeah, it's very difficult because one way to stop it would be to have wage caps where you can only spend a certain amount of the money that you bring in. And that stops you from running up massive debts and needing £20 million loans at what's probably going to be around 12% interest or something. So it would prevent that from happening. Obviously, it then makes it more difficult for teams to break into the Premier League or to have owners that come in and spend loads of money. But it would protect the clubs a bit more, stop clubs from um, running up massive debts and ended up in administration. So I think the issue with that right now is that for that to come in and take place, I think there'd have to be a majority vote from the clubs within the league, which obviously the owners don't want that because they want to be able to gamble and take a it's risk. like asking turkeys to vote for Christmas, in it, Pete, to, to use a very topical reference at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what you need. If that is the way forward, which... 
I'm not sure if it is, but it would definitely protect the finances of clubs and you'd need someone to step in and, and make that happen rather than it just being a um, a vote from the clubs. I think, obviously, when you talk about finances, quite often Kieran Maguire gets brought up as the as the expert and he's quite often pushing for an independent regulator to protect the clubs rather than you know, only just looking out for themselves and rather than the actual football, football clubs that they, they do, well, own, if you like, for want of a better word. But, yeah, it's... It's very difficult when you've got pe- people that are just, you know, quite often the owners of clubs are just people that either want a toy to play with or, or want something that as a just as a, a position to say that they own one. It's very rare that you get get fans that own the club and, and gen- genuinely want the best for the, the football club long term. And there's no, there's no there's no Jack Walkers anymore, I'm afraid, Pete. That's that, that's the, certainly the way it seems. Worrying times, great times on the pitch and, you know, a magnificent way on the pitch to end 2022. Because to be honest, if I think if you'd asked Pete and I at the end of October, whether 2022 was going to be a good year for Albion, we'd have laughed in your face. And it's actually ended in a magnificent fashion off the pitch, though. It is very, very worrying. And it need, you know, we need to keep that in mind and whilst as, as Action for Albion always say, support the team, not the board. Let's get behind these boys because they're doing amazing things for us. But let's keep making a noise around what's going on off the pitch because whatever happens on the pitch, if we continue to be mismanaged like this, we are genuinely under threat of not having a club, not having a training ground, not having a stadium. And that cannot, cannot happen to this magnificent old club. I'll leave you with those thoughts. Once again, thanks for listening and up the baggies. Albion have certainly been sharing the goals around this season. They're well into double figures now for different championship goal scorers. So why not take a leaf out of their book? and do some sharing of your own with the McNugget share box. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.